0: You're listening to the Perth Property Show. Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good
1: morning, everyone. Welcome to the Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskin. It's your host. As always, this week, we are speaking to a mate of mine. His name is Cal Doggett. He's the managing director of a company that has been absolutely making waves in the shadows in Western Australia over the last decade or so. A company you may not have heard of, but one that has been kicking massive goals in the funds management space is Properties and Pathways. Carl, thanks for coming in, mate. It's been a long time coming. It has been. Thank you for having me. It's also episode 250 and we didn't realize this until we were chatting off air before pressing the record button but thank you so much for coming in on this milestone episode and to all the listeners out there, the thousands and thousands of people that listen every week, thank you so much for supporting us, giving us a reason to put this together. 250, I never thought we'd get to this number when we were at number one with Brendan Ptolemy back in 2019 and I'm very proud to be talking these days about something as sophisticated as funds management in, in the industrial and commercial space with you, Cal. Privileged to be here, Trent. 250 is quite something, mate. A lot of time and energy, no doubt, that goes into that. So kudos to you. Thank you. Let's talk about you personally a little bit. I think a lot of people who would look at the industry from afar and wonder, how do you get into it? How does it work? It seems like Men in Ivory Towers, you know, your Charter Halls, your Prime West Centurions, these big companies that always seem to just start with lots of money mm-hmm. and play with lots of money. They play a big game. It's not exactly the game that you play, but from the smaller more nimble efficient scale certainly when you started your career back when we were working at Price Coopers together in the right. uh, 2000s it's been a real ride for you do you want to tell us a little bit of that life story coming out of university Trent similar to yourself we kind of cut our teeth at Price
0: Coopers, learnt a lot uh, I think you did four years there I may have done five in a like a traineeship program that was fantastic and I was lucky enough to have one of the partners there say get as much experience as you can while you're here dip your toe into all these different areas and sections. And so I did a bit of corporate tax some international tax, did some private clients, did some GST, did some R&D. You kind of really got a bit of a feel for just commerce really. And that was back in 2007. And 2012, five years later, my dad was managing a bit of a fledgling private property portfolio. So it wasn't long before he was in my ear saying, hey, let's come have a look at a few
1: of these deals I'm doing. Would have been nice to bring the family and get the son who's been cutting his teeth on the terrace to come and do something and make him pretty proud, I'm sure.
0: I think he was proud, but I was out of my depth. I learned a lot in a really small space of time, and I'm really privileged for that because with the father-son relationship, you don't hold things back so there's some pretty big lessons in that
1: but coming into it obviously coming out of working on the terrace and consulting Mm. i think one reality that we all recognize here and which is why it seems like a really nearly an unreachable job in an unreachable industry is that i'm sure if you could have you would have done a very specific commerce degree that was related to it the closest thing you have really is the valuation course at Curtin. but yeah not really that relevant is it unless you can get yourself in there it would have been a huge learning curve for you the first few years you would have been semi-useless surely financial
0: modeling no but understanding how property works yes Mm -hmm. and i was lucky that my old man was a real fundamentalist he wouldn't care about the numbers he's the guy that wanted to get out and walk and see a property like he'd drive down the roads and turn right into a property and say that shouldn't be a right turn. That's just not going to work. And he'd sit in the car park and watch the traffic flow and he'd say, oh, that signage is just not good enough. It needs to go higher or the car parking should be in front, not behind. And so we pounded the pavement, just got out and looked at a lot of property. So I was really lucky that I had this fundamentalist view of property
1: and how- it's qualitative view and you had the yeah, quantitative.
0: Exactly, Trent. He really taught me that without even without saying it, but what, what I took away from it was people interact with property on a daily basis. So the behavioral characteristics of how people interact, that is the value. So if they're going to interact with a retail center today, obviously that's worth a certain amount of money. But if there's a higher usage for that land and they're going to interact with that in another way in 10 years time being apartments or mixed use, then there's a different value attributable. So it's all about humans interaction and the behavior that we take interacting with property. I was really lucky to see that with my eyeballs while working with my dad. I was really lucky because I could cut my teeth on his portfolio Mm. and you could kind of see, you know, he might've had five properties at the time and I could just see how he was managing them and really working them with his hands. I had the, I suppose, the financial background to put it on paper, something that he really didn't know how to do he builds a portfolio based largely on really good leverage and growth over time i think in 2010 i stepped into our first syndicate ever which was actually him me i think my brother and my sister came in Great. And that one delivered about 180% return in seven years. That was the time when I could have gone out and bought my own property or I could have...
1: Most people would have been aspirationally trying to get their first home deposit, right?
0: Yeah, 100%. I had this home deposit and my dad was cheeky enough or wise enough to say, mate, come have a look at this with me and we'll go do it together. What was it? It was an industrial property in Slacks Creek in Queensland. Coates Hire with a tenant and they had about two years left on their lease. We bought that at about 10% return. Anyway, I sold it about four years ago for about a 6% return and put them on a 10-year lease and did a few bits and pieces. But we made a lot
1: of money out of that. Going back to that for a second, if we can, you're in your early 20s. Mm. Your dad said, be a part of buying this property mm. that has a Coats hire." And we know what Coats hire is in Western Australia. But in this suburb, you've never heard of in Queensland. Surely <laughs> you're going, dad, this sounds really out of whack here. This is like buying property in America.
0: It was. It was a risk. True to everything he taught me, we went over there and we looked at it and we looked at the neighboring tenants and we looked at the roads and there was a widening of the highway that was going to come in in slacks creek and slacks creek's really between brisbane and the gold coast right so we looked at that thoroughfare and thought well that's probably something that's not going to go away anytime soon and they were widening it at the time and we thought well that's got to be good more traffic passing Mm. and there was an ikea that was due to be constructed two doors down and we thought geez that's that's got to be pretty good for the area it almost felt like This industrial zoning was moving a bit more to retail. And as we know, retail rents are double and a bit on industrial rent. So we actually bought the property for a bit of a long-term play and we sat there and watched the cars and we talked to the coats hire and we said, look, how long have you been here and how's your trade? And we really wanted to understand the tenant's reason for being there. And then before you know it, they tell you everything. Coats High was saying, look, we need to be here because it's the easiest access and egress onto the freeway. And it's wide enough that cars can turn around and pick up a trailer and they don't have to do a three-point turn.
1: Which is super critical. Like, how do you do... You You can't can't quantify that in any normal isolated property deal.
0: There's no place for that on paper. But there was a real need for Coats High to be there. And there was an ability to drive in and turn around and exit without having to do a three-point or reverse, that behavior, again, how humans are behaving and interacting with that properly made a lot of sense. Can you look
1: back on it and go, compared to the Fizos we're doing these days, (laughs) we sort of winged it. Do you feel like, I look back on when I was doing my first developments Mm. in in a triple X space, for example, a decade ago, using Excel spreadsheets and sort of like a back-of-the-envelope style development. It was in a good market. Things were less risky than other times over Mm. the last decade and things worked out. Yeah. Uh, these days there's 50 more items on that DV yes. that I would be doing. Do you look back in the same way?
0: Yeah, I do actually. I look back at that spreadsheet and I'm like, I can't believe that used to be our feasibility. There's like 10 boxes on this thing and about six line items. And now you have to be a wizard to understand the modeling and the, how much uh, sophistication we brought to it. But I had no reluctance at all and I had no fear because once we chatted with Coates Hire and did that first deal, it almost felt like the numbers didn't matter. I felt like we were always going to have a tenant that wanted to be there. And if that was the case, it was really for us just to know that the rent was going to be more than our interest. And so this is really, really dumbed down. We knew that the asset was going to work. It was going to have a return. And we thought, well, that return's pretty defensible because then this tenant needs to be here. And if it wasn't going to be here, there'd be three other tenants that would take their spot. My father put in 50% of the equity and I put in a big chunk myself about you know 25% and my brother and sister came in for a bit and it went really well. I mean, what a great
1: start. And I find in property <laughs> as well, you only get one or two chances when you're starting. Yeah, And if things didn't work out for you, I have so many clients or people i would speak to over the years, especially in the earlier days where the market wasn't that great, mm. who'd cut their teeth, tried their hand at a small subdivision or at property investing just per se and didn't get it right. The timing of it, the purchase price the strategy planning risk and it was always going to be doomed to fail it was a lemon you can't turn lemons into lemonade in property most of the time unfortunately Mm. and they've only got that capital that risk profile for maybe one maybe two bad decisions and then they probably just never come back
0: so true i mean i'm thinking about it like if we had tried to buy that property a year ago right and the cap rates blew out like they did because of interest rate rises it may have been a different story but we wouldn't have lost the tenant the tenant would have still been fine. So yes, our margin would have been more anemic, but we still would have made money. So I think the fundamentalist view there really got us over the line, as in walking the property, making sure that there was a relevance for that property and that location for that tenant really got us over the line. We're lucky it went well.
1: Um, How did it progress from there?
0: We did another deal. And this deal, we brought in some friends and family. So we brought in like five friends from the tennis club they were all like knocking on my dad's door saying, come on, you tell us all these stories about yeah, making money. Like, yeah, yeah, so why don't you do it for us? And interestingly, this one property ended up being the cornerstone of our entire business because my dad was good enough to go out and find the asset for them. We actually bought it off Prime West. It's delivering a 19% return per year. It's still going, Right.
1: That's ballsy, isn't it? Because yeah. <laughs> one of the big questions an investor might ask, or you might ask yourself is, yeah. if Prime West is selling it, there must be something wrong with it.
0: That's the right question to ask. In this case, Prime West were relinquishing the asset because it didn't fit their mandate anymore. It was too small for them to manage.
1: Not worth the time.
0: Yeah. And at that stage, I mean, Prime West went on a, a, just a mercurial journey, right, from that point onwards. But they were forthright. It was really great dealing with them. They were awesome counterparts. And we acquired this asset and my dad did all the due diligence on it and then said, All right, boys, you're in. They all turned back and said, Hold on, but aren't you going to come into this deal with us? He said, I don't really have a lot of equity right now.
1: It's all in the coat's hire. Yeah.
0: And they just said, Well, then we don't, we're not going ahead. And interestingly, that one conversation formed the basis of our business today. So we realized that when you're tapping your friends on the shoulder or they're asking you to invest, they're only going to do so if you're backing your own product. Mm. And so for every syndicate since that point, we've always invested alongside them and we've always taken our equity and placed it at risk alongside our investors. We did one or two more and then Asset came along and said, hey, you've you've got to get a license if you're going to do this long term. Yeah, so the first one was 2010, second one was 2011 and then in 2012, I actually then quit PwC because I was like, this works. Yeah. Quit PwC and we started this business and basically went and got our license and then from that point, we had to bring a lot more sophistication to the game because... A few more rules in the book. A few more rules in the book. A lot more rules in the book. And people started to ask us questions like, when are we going to exit this trust? And what happens if you lose this tenant? And what happens if interest rates rise? The more
1: sophisticated investors, is what you're saying.
0: Yeah. My dad had never dealt with these questions before (laughs) because he'd always been a fundamentalist. And so it was up to me. And I'm mid-20s and I'm going, well, far out. What happens if we did lose this tenant? Like, what would we do? And so you start to build a strategy around that. You start to say, well... We'll need to build some allowances for vacancy downtime. We might have to refurbish a tenancy and build in a bit of extra cash for some upgrades. And we might need to account for the incentive for a new tenant. And so you start to refine your feasibility and build in a lot more conservatism so that you can really justifiably hit this return.
1: Isn't it funny what you're referencing here is you're starting to move along the risk curve a little bit (laughs) from cowboy having a crack, first investment, which is where most people will start, even Mm -hmm. if they don't perceive it. They are just obviously working in a more risky environment because they just can't mitigate or identify those risks. You get to the point where you're now having to start identify every risk and cater for them. And therefore, it may mean that your appetite is far smaller than it would have been a year earlier. You've literally hit
0: the nail on the head. That is exactly what we started doing. And then you'd always have these conversations of, how do you know the tenant's going to stay when their option comes up or when their lease comes up? I'd be there saying, we just know. They can't go anywhere. There's no available supply. They're under-rented. They've been there for 20 years. And, And you start to build this case of why your tenants should stay where they are. And we were playing a pretty vanilla game. I mean, we're not developing property. We're not buying land. We're buying improved land, so with buildings on it. And we were saying there are tenants in place, And maybe we can add a bit of value here by extending leases or improving rents and maybe filling a small
1: bit of vacancy. And that's been your game ever since, right? And this is where Mm. you set yourself apart as I referenced at the start. Many asset management businesses, which I guess you would be calling yourself, Mm. some are smaller than yours, some are much larger than yours, much bigger brands. They certainly do seem to be on the curve of simply asset preservation. Buying Mm. a site that might be a Dan Murphy's or a Bunnings, or engineer warehouse in Welshpool, for example, and just sitting on it and saying, well, we just bought this at 6%, we're gonna leverage it a bit, and in five years' time, we'll see how it looks. And that is essentially the strategy. Mm. Now, personally, I look at it and think, what a lazy strategy. You're not manufacturing any wealth here. You're not creating anything. You're simply just holding assets and your real mandate is just to make fees off of investors. There's obviously a place for that in the market, isn't there, Cal?
0: 100%. There absolutely is. We don't play in that space. Look, one of our mandates is that we like to add value within the first 24 months. So. Whatever asset we're picking now, we're essentially saying there is value left on the table. Mm. And that's because the current owners aren't seeing it, or they're not willing to go and do it, or they don't know how to do it. And we would pick that up and go, hey, there's value there. We can add this value with our own nows and our own hands within the first 24 months. But to your point, Trent, there's a lot, there's a huge amount of capital that's burning a hole in the pockets of institutional grade REITs and other asset managers, which is causing them to place funds purely for the sake of placing them.
1: They've got so much money they have have to put somewhere and it's like, well, I guess we can buy this coals and buy it at a market rate and that's safe. Yes. Yeah, 100%. Is that really adding value or can your response be, well, yes, the money needs to go somewhere. It's a national blue chip tenant, therefore there is a risk reward for that. It's nowhere near the risk of what we're trying to do, but there is a place because there are there's plenty of money out there that's not looking to make more money, just simply looking to preserve the money they've got.
0: Yes. I mean essentially you're right. Like there are institutions out there right now that are doing exactly that. And so if we're a slightly more boutique offering, it would be stupid for us to try and compete directly with that. I mean, why would you well, come you to not these are,
1: These are funds that are hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in size. Think yes. about a Centuria or a, yeah. a Charter Hall. They're such a massive elephant. They, they have a system that, mm. that needs to get fed every year with assets, and they probably don't have the time or therefore the, the risk profile to be looking to turn something into something else.
0: That's right. I wouldn't say that none of their products make money because they do have some that do, but a huge amount of the capital they have and their place goes into extremely passive investments. And that is good. There is a need for that. And there is also a demand for that, right? But the interesting part is we realized early on that if we don't want to compete with them, well, why don't we do the heavy lifting and then sell the beautiful asset to them? They'll be our buyer. They're your market. Right? Because there's not
1: many people in Australia that can afford a $50 million (laughs) warehouse, let's be honest.
0: So we could be the syndicate which groups together high net worth investors and some, some friends and family we can acquire the asset, add the value, and then once it's on a silver platter and all the work's done, then we can sell that to a charter hall or a centurion. And we've done that plenty of times. Because then it will
1: meet their brief, their mandate. Absolutely, yeah.
0: So we can buy the asset at 8.5% or 9% return with a six-month lease on it, right? And extend that lease or improve the rent or you know, create some additional hard stand, de-risk it, create the value in it, and then sell it to the likes of these relatively passive institutions.
1: I guess that's where the story has to continue here is you were referencing before that the initial conversations were, well, how do we know they're going to release? How do we know that you're going to get more rent? Mm. And you would be saying, well, we just know like, we've had the conversations, they're not going anywhere else. I guess after a track record of over a decade now, you're not getting as many questions anymore like that, because you've <laughs> now got examples, case studies to show where in the space of Weeks, months, maybe a year or so, you've turned something that you've been able to buy at eight and a half, nine percent, de risked it and sold it to someone at six.
0: That's the beauty of a track record, I suppose, is that it builds confidence in your investor base, the ability to do what you say you're going to do. But we kind of go one step further because you and I both know, Trent, that the property market is in the general buy and demand can go against you the macro space right so interest rates can move and cpi can blow you out the water immigration
1: can can flip on its head
0: yeah all these things economically can move asset values right that's why our mandate is to add value within the first 12 to 24 months because we mitigate the time factor exactly yeah so we wanted to be the organization that said yes we can buy that asset we think it's defensible but we can take it from 12 to 14 or 12 to 15 within a 24-month period And then if the market goes backwards, at least we're not underwater. And what happens when you're underwater? You have REITs that they just did, FY23, asset values down by $6 billion, right? That's because they're buying without the ability to add value Mm. and the market's moved against them.
1: Yeah, it's funny, right? The same thing that you've said there in your space in this industrial retail commercial space far be a game, obviously. Mm. is exactly the ethos that I've always had in small-scale development. So, why buy a passive property and be beholden to the risks of the market at market value, which is actually market value minus 5% because of stamp duty, when sure. you think about it, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, when you could actually go and de-risk that, people say, well, it's, it's risky, isn't it, doing development? It's like, well, actually, this is the only way I would buy an, into mm. properties when I've gotten, a strategy to de-risk the downside by creating value straight away. And that might be, well, if I know I can buy a small-scale development site where I'm going to make 20% on that project in a year and a half, and let's say the worst thing happens, the market drops 20% that year and a half, well, at least I'm still not down. That's right. You have the same ethos, just in a different space.
0: 100%, which means that either you or I or both of us are looking at the risk versus reward the right way, in my opinion. We don't get excited about buying an asset at a 5% return and selling it at a 5% return. It doesn't excite us. We wanna be in the position to add value in a really sensible way that's mitigated. Ultimately, we're playing with risk and reward and we wanna balance those two as best we can. And I think the one thing I learned from my father and definitely in the first kind of five to six years of my business was there was far more that I didn't know than what I did know. And that created a real curiosity but the other thing it did was it kept me playing in really tight train tracks. So we learned pretty early on not to try and be everything for everyone. You stayed in your lane. You stayed in our lane. I'd like to beat myself on you know the chest here and say we do it better than anyone because our lane's really small. It is very niche, it's, it's it's very tiny.
1: unique. And I'm a little bit worried that people who are listening to this today, there will be a percentage of people who get this, get every reference of yours that we're mm-hmm. talking about. There'll be a percentage of people who are going, hang on a sec, what's a REIT? Hang on a sec. What industrial commercial stuff? Can you give us an example? So maybe straight up, we should just give a really plain example of sure. one of the investments you've made, so that people who have been listening for the last twenty minutes can catch up. And I don't mean that facetiously. Just yeah. give us a really basic idea of something that you bought, why you bought it, what the tenant was again. Uh, you know, we can talk about. Obviously, we had the coats one, but and then what the exit was. Sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Look, one of the deals which I enjoyed the most was an asset that we acquired in 2019. It had six months left on the lease. And it was a industrial warehouse, essentially storage in a place called Larapinta in Queensland. And we bought it for about $7.2 And at that point, six months left on the lease, but the tenant was Caterpillar okay so we know everyone knows caterpillar everyone knows caterpillar we've seen the hats we've seen all the merch and they've got massive diesel motors and engines and they service and fabricate for all the mining tenements in australia and the owner was a high net worth okay it's an
1: individual family office who owned a warehouse in queensland and caterpillar was renting the warehouse
0: yeah and he had bought the warehouse i don't know 20 years ago right owned it forever essentially he didn't have the nows to communicate with the tenant and didn't have the knowledge to create the value that we saw. So he basically said, "Oh gosh, I think Caterpillar are going to leave." He sold the asset on that risk. Didn't want an empty warehouse, and there might have been thousands of reasons personally for him that made that the case. Right? He could have had, you know, some uh, family affliction, or he could have been over leveraged somewhere else. We don't know, but what we do know is that we came across this asset in 2019 and we said, let's just dive into the risk here. Let's actually start to pull it apart and understand what are the levers that we can pull and what are the levers that are currently evident in that market, which are going to make Caterpillar stay, or if they go, that we could replace them. And what we started to realize very quickly was that They had to be in Larapinta because 70% of their workforce was within, I think, a four-kilometer radius of their site.
1: So his fears were unfounded.
0: Totally unfounded, but he'd never asked the question. And that's the part that spooks us the most. We started to think, okay, cool. Well, they had to be in Larapinta because it was between the Gold Coast and Brisbane, and it was within three minutes of the major arterial link called the Gateway Motorway, which is basically heavy industrial usage, four lanes either way, And this was an industrial usage tenant. So they needed to have accessibility to this major motorway. And then we started to look at things like, hey, this was actually purpose-built for them 10 years ago. So why would you leave a purpose-built site? You would only do so if your business is expanding or if it's contracting. And then we looked at other things like they had the circulation around their site, but it was all loose gravel. So the only thing we did during our due diligence is really pull apart the same characteristics that we did for Coates Hire. We looked at what are the behavioral elements of this tenancy and the people in this tenancy and why they need to be in this location. And then we started to look at rental rates around and we said, well, this is only rented at like $100 a square meter and everything else around here is at 113 and 112 and 108 Why is this one lower in rent than the comparable sites around us lazy property manager lazy property manager but also maybe during a lease sometimes there's not that ability to dictate rent because you're just getting your fixed escalations right so instead of looking at that as a perceived risk and running away we did the opposite we dived into the detail and then as you do Trent, and as you've done hundreds of times we looked at it and said wow this is something we really want to be sure about and proceed with so we ended up buying that asset. Okay, we bought that asset for seven. It was about seven point two four million, and we sold it in twenty twenty one for fourteen point three million. Two years, two years. But here's the thing. This is the part that gets me the most, and this is what some of my competitors aren't willing to do, either because they're too big, or because they haven't done it before, or they haven't got the competency. Or they don't the have business. the competency. I literally called up the MD of Caterpillar, and I was like, "Hey, you've got this beautiful site in Larry Larapinta. What are your guys' plans?" And he said geez well we really need to be in this location for a long time so that was music to my ears and he said but the only thing is the hard stand isn't working for us so we're looking at other sites and i said well what about the hard stand isn't working for you and he said oh it's all loose gravel at the meantime and we really want to lay all our diesel engines out there we want to be able to lay it out there but every time our truck goes out there kicks up all this dust and it, it really frustrates our workers so i was like okay well You said you want to be here for a long time what happens if we could solve that problem for you and he said yeah that would work so I said I'll tell you what we'll change the loose gravel to hard stand but we have to rent it to you it's going to cost us $300,000 to do that but we need to rent it to you we'll rent it to you at $30 a square meter he said absolutely sounds amazing I said how about a 10-year lease he said that'll be absolutely suitable I said, look, I can tell you right now that you're under rented, but because we're gonna do this deal quite quickly, you've got a need for the space. We would love you to stay as a tenant. Why don't we you know, meet halfway? And I think we structured a deal at about $110 a square meter. So within the space of three months after owning that asset, we had restructured Caterpillar on a new 10-year lease We'd taken the rent from about 680 grand to 740 grand because now we're renting hard stand. And during that time, industrial property happened to go through quite a spur in demand. The capitalization rates dropped from about eight, eight and three quarter percent where we bought it down to about five percent. And then we sold it to Charter Hall at four and three quarter percent. Yeah, wow. So our investors put in not even four million dollars into that deal because we had some leverage. So,
1: we gave our investors almost a 200% return in two years. Congratulations, man. I mean, (laughs) who, who else would have done that in Australia in that time, in that space? I can't imagine anyone would have been playing that game. And that's why I wanted to get you on today is to show people at all spectrums of the property investment game that there are many ways to cut your teeth. There are many ways. If you're not super keen on residential, not super keen on simply just sitting your money somewhere, there are people out there who are absolutely making waves in the industry and it's not just you and getting into a funds management space doesn't have to be that lazy investment where you're parking your money. It's an exciting space, right? But I don't know anyone else that's really playing that game in your space. The next question I want to ask is, you obviously said, I want to stay in my lane. Mm. A big part of the property problem in Australia right now is housing, is supply. You've got a base of money behind you. You've got sophistication. Would you ever move out of that lane into residential at Properties and Pathways, a place where you can be part of that solution as well?
0: I think what happens is you get comfortable with experience and then ultimately you want to take that experience and leverage it to create better returns right in our space now our train tracks we know the competitors we know what they're looking for we often transact stock off our competitors add value and then sell it to another competitor for more money so we're really starting to operate in a a level of sophistication in that space the interesting part trent is that we're not doing anything really sexy Like, we're literally having conversations with tenants Mm. and we're understanding if a tenant could leave, who would we fill that space with, right? We're not doing anything too sexy. Interestingly, we actually did the same thing in residential property in 2020. We went and bought eight subdivisible blocks in WA. Why? Well, that was us playing with the numbers that we could see economically. We've got historical low supply. In those days, and still now, we've got our affordability index is the best in WA compared to any other eastern seaboard state. We've got greatest household income. And then beyond all that, what we love is that the acquisitions we were buying are land backed. As in, we were basically buying a house on a big enough block of land that if the house wasn't there, we're not losing all our money we might lose 10 percent of our money most of it was in the land yeah right which and is
1: not the same as with commercial and industrial no. you're actually paying for a lease at the end of the day
0: exactly right but then we looked at that and we said well can we add value within the first 12 to 24 months and simply we can all we have to do is subdivide the back block anyone can do that subdivide the back block and then you've already created value now against Trent, that's not sexy i mean that's well, what we do every you've day you've done that thousands of times right that's not sexy but We looked at that and said, with the amount of money we actually have to put in, because we're getting some leverage, we can generate like 50, 60, 70% returns in two years. And that trust, to this day, I still think will be our best performing trust. (laughs) So that's so ironic,
1: right? Because dollar for dollar, it is quite interesting that I sit here and with a lot of pride and awe at my (laughs) mate Cal who's doing so well in that space. But I guess it's music to people's ear in the residential space Mm. with playing with a bit less money, a bit Mm. less sophistication that they can still dollar for dollar make a fantastic return in the residential space adding to supply, solving another one of Australia's problems.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that, yes, we know our train tracks really well, but there will be times, Trent, where we won't be transacting property purely because the market doesn't allow us. So I think that's really important to understand that you can't be totally loyal to one asset class, that you're always transacting there and you always have to create a dollar there if you're going to be loyal to that asset class, then you have to be willing to sit on the sidelines You have to know when
1: it doesn't work. Yes. That's mm-hmm. why I asked the question, just out of chewing the fat interest really, mm-hmm. is I've always believed whilst I very much stick to my lane way of Western Australia, it's important for me to be able to understand all of the markets across Western Australia, being commercial, being infill land, being subdivision, being townhouses, apartments, childcare, all these spaces, right? Because mm-hmm. at any one point in time, whilst... Resi might not be great in Western Australia. Mm. It might work really well for in industrial or commercial. Yes. Uh, and I n- understand Western Australia uh, like no one else in terms of the streets and the suburbs and the fundamentals yes. so I can de-risk my market understanding mm. and also de-risk my strategy understanding mm. based on where it fits in the market. Surely you'd be thinking with the capital you have behind you these days that as you just said there might be a time where trading in and out of industrial and commercial you might need to sit on the sidelines for that and therefore that residential space there might be a time for that soon and surely going into the market we're in at the moment in western australia it might be a relevant time you've hit
0: a lot of points there that i completely agree with
1: um a lot of cap rate risk in the industrial commercial
0: space yeah there is so interestingly we sold our industrial portfolio in like basically the end of last year right Good time to sell an industrial portfolio. We got it right. Whether it was all luck or not, we we certainly uh, delivered a good return to our investors and, and they were brave enough to support us to go buy industrial assets in the middle of COVID, right? So the strategy worked but this is why we sold those we went out and we generated a report from a friend of mine and we had to go back to the archives of the melbourne library to get the information okay we built effectively a comparison from 1980 all the way up to the present moment and we compared property yields through all different classes as in industrial retail and commercial the average property yield which obviously was averaging those three and we compared that with cpi we compared it with 90-day BBSY, we compared it with variable bank rate, the cash rate, we compared it with 10-year Australian bonds,
1: 10-year American bonds. Risk-free rates, essentially.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We compared it with GDP growth, and we looked at all these metrics on one table at one time. And what we could clearly see, which is why we exited the industrial at that time, was that industrial cap rates have been tightening since 2000. They were at 9.9% was the average industrial cap rate at that time and then we were selling we sold our industrial portfolio at five percent so the question we were asking ourselves was how much further could it how go? how much further can it go and then obviously since then trent we've seen a swelling in cap rates because interest rates have moved right which
1: is obvious which is logical
0: yeah totally logical except it's got to stop and here's why Because in 2007 and 2008, there was about a 16 to 18-month period of time where the interest rate was above the cap rate.
1: Well, the interest rate escalated massively over that time. It did. People were actually paying interest rates higher than they are now.
0: Over those 18 months there, there was interest rates at 7.33% and cap rates about 6%. So what it's telling you there is that investors were buying assets land-backed purely for the growth. They're actually mm. losing money Not for the present when you value, look at
1: leverage. Because the term deposit would have probably been about 6% of that time. Exactly.
0: And it shows you a period of time where investors didn't run with this, I suppose, what we've become really comfortable with today, where interest rates have to be lower than cap rates, and they don't. We look back between 1980 and 1991, there was a sustained 11-year period where cap rates were lower than the interest rates. Well, of
1: course, because interest rates got to 18% at one point in time, right? Cap rates were never anywhere near that.
0: That's right. The average over that time of the interest rate as in the 90-day BBSY was 14%, right? And cap rate average was eight. And yet for 11 years, people still bought property. So what it's showing us is that at different periods of time, you can leverage not just adding value with your own hands to property, but if you get the timing right, the market can do some of the work for you. And if you get the timing wrong, it can really damage you. And that's what we've just seen. Rates dropped six billion dollars in FY twenty three purely from timing. Mm.
1: Nothing changed with the actual asset itself.
0: No, exactly. Fundamentally, there's still great asset, they still tenanted, still got good land value. Same lease. So if you're a charter hall and you bought an asset from us at four and three quarter percent return and you're selling it at six percent, you're underwater. That's massive. Massive underwater. But yet they've done nothing wrong. The market's moved against them. And it's a paper value because they haven't sold it either. Exactly. But now they're having these write downs, okay. And what we're starting to see in the market is that a few of the institutions will be letting their assets go at book value. Now, that book value's just been written down by about 13%. So, guys like us, we look at that and say, well, if we were to hold that asset for two years and we can add value to it within 24 months, does that then make sense to mitigate the risk of further
1: reduction in capital values? And do you think there is much risk in that space of the cap rate? getting past six into the sevens again in some of these classes. Do you think that's a mm. material risk? Obviously, we look at, you just mentioned decoupling it from cash rates, but yes. I guess there's a view at the moment in the market that cash rates probably aren't going to increase much more. If anything, the next move might even be down sometime sure. next year. It won't yeah. be materially, but yeah. the market's probably looking at stability right now. Mm. Do you think there is material risk of a cap rate that gets into the sixes and sevens for a lot of these assets
0: we're already seeing evidence now of cap rates continuing to soften but that's more of a six-month lag right i mean it takes some time for the market to adjust yeah Yeah, it's latency so we certainly see that cap rates will probably stabilize around about seven percent seven and a quarter okay but for us if we're going to buy an asset if we're suggesting in our feasibility that cap rates won't soften by 25 bips, and If it did, our asset would be underwater, then why are we buying it? I mean, if you're that sensitive to 25-bit movement in the cap rate, you're not doing your job. Like, you're just not. So That's so
1: many funds out there.
0: (laughs) You're right. (laughs) There's so many funds out there placing passive capital at those rates. But then we chatted about this just earlier, Trent. The interesting part there is that there's so many people that are willing to just play the cash flow game, even if capital values stagnate or go backwards for a year or two, and that's where the charter halls, that's where the ISBTs, that's where the Centurions of the World, that's where there's a relevance to them because they're placing funds into usually pretty well leased buildings in great land, in great areas with decent locations and good land value.
1: Defensive assets is what you call defensive
0: them. assets, and we know some of our investor base just want that. They would love to own a Dan Murphy's for ten years. They would love to own a Coles Angus Shopping Centre for ten years, right? But we know that. During that 10-year period, there might be a two-year period where it's actually the capital value has gone backwards, but it's still delivering cash flow. Mm. So we aren't that syndicator. We want to be the syndicator that can generate capital upside within 12 to 24 months.
1: Do you think that's still possible in the commercial industrial space? You're looking obviously on the market every day. It is. Like a rabid dog. (laughs) It is. It's
0: definitely more difficult. Like it was far easier in 2014, I'll tell you that much. But then again, Trent, we're only doing two a year. So because we're always placing our capital alongside our investors' capital and we always prosper together, we don't have the benefit of doing 17 deals a year or doing five deals a year, we do two. So we're really making sure those two deals are gonna go the right
1: way. That demonstrates a lot of restraint, Cal. You have 365 (laughs) days of the year, probably 250 of those you are actively working Mm. to spend two of those days signing a purchase contract demonstrates Mm -hmm. a lot of restraint in the rest of the time what are you spending your time doing surely there are many assets you come across that go well that that would work yeah it
0: would and the reality trend is that we believe our job is to say no to 99 percent of the assets that cross our desk right i mean you'll see opportunities all day every
1: day we do the same thing (laughs) but you know we also love what we do yes and at some point in time throughout the weeks and the months you go i really really want to get that one
0: yeah totally Oh, there's ones I look back on and go, geez, wouldn't that have been great if we'd bought that one? I thought we should have. But there's nothing quite like a track record. And what will keep me up at night is if we start getting more outlandish with our risk appetite. So we know our investor base really well. We've got like a 70% reinvestment rate and lots of people have invested with us 10, 11 times, right? We know their appetite and I think it's really important to understand that the product we're offering them it needs to resonate with what they're used to Mm. and it needs to resonate with what they can tolerate. So even our foray into residential, like I talked about two years ago- That would have been
1: perceivably risky.
0: Oh, there were so many of our investors that went, what are you doing? Like, you've never done residential. There's no cash flow in residential. Even though most people in
1: the market would see res as being less risky because they can quantify it more. That's right.
0: We were able to offer that to a slightly different segment of our investor base and they gobbled it up and it's it's actually performing really well, mate. Well, because
1: it's- resi property in the west australian housing market since 2020 i mean everyone knows where that's gone passively
0: yeah passively we haven't done a thing i suppose we've subdivided some land but other than keep the tenants in occupation and improved rent a little bit we haven't gone out and done a huge amount but that was a great example of the fact that we could add value quite passively just by subdividing
1: (laughs) welcome to my business (laughs) yeah no
0: exactly and you know in hindsight next time we'll just come to you and say trent find me 15 properties right um (laughs) that might be easier for us. But when our investors are placing a lot of their money with us and there's 75% of their money or our capital that we're deploying is self-managed super fund money, we really want to make sure that when we're going into an asset, we're picking it well and we really are crossing the T's and dotting the I's. So it's almost like we're more willing to let the one go that doesn't perfectly fit us so that when we're in the asset, we don't have to lie awake at night wondering if it's going to be a goodie. We, Mm. We know. We know before... We contract that asset before we settle that asset i mean in many cases we've added the
1: value before we settle it i would have thought in assets like the ones you invest in mm. which are obviously perceivably more risky harder to understand for an investor even for your mum and dad you want to be able to demonstrate exactly how you know you're going to make this better because, in most situations, in passive investment, it's very hard to explain that. You can say, oh, well, the market's going to get better, but GDP's looking something or other, immigration's looking something or other, and you start using all these jargonistic words that make it sound like the world's going to be better in a couple of years, therefore your asset will be worth more. But that's not really how you generate wealth in property. That's just passive investment and hoping things go well for you. You may as well go to the casino, yes. put your money on red.
0: I totally agree with that. When you're building a feasibility or, or you're basically starting to project, you need to be able to do so on today's terms. There's no point projecting tomorrow because tomorrow could be very different than what you think. Yes, we believe that if you get the timing right, you can deliver exponentially better returns. So it would be nice that the timing is right, Yeah. but you need to be able to add that value so that if the timing's wrong, you're still above water.
1: In some of those examples you gave, I'm sure you'd be, uh, I know you'd be humble enough to say that, look, We made $7 million in that, but we probably only planned for three of it. The rest of it was just great timing that we had an idea about, but certainly couldn't guarantee.
0: Absolutely, Trent. In fact, when we bought that asset, our idea was to definitely keep the tenant, renew the lease, but then to enjoy the income. That shows you how lucky we we were. And you've got to be in it to win it, right? So we were happy to take the risk of a six-month lease expiry. We were happy to leverage the
1: asset in a clever way to get into it.
0: But you're right totally we didn't expect seven million dollars out of it
1: and that's a lot of people across all property types in perth right now where they've gone and done in development they've gone and bought a passive investment mm. and the markets made them look a lot smarter than they were totally well i
0: think i mean there's a lot of REITs that are now underwater because of it
1: well and mm. you say that right and in, in those investments where there was no strategy other than hold yes and we're in a commercial space right now mm. it goes the other way and that's about i think the theme of today is making sure you have a strategy that is risk mitigated in, ironically, the space of manufacturing wealth somehow, right? That seems more risky, but in fact, the whole strategy is about mitigating risk in the first place. 100%. The last question I want to ask is, you've spoken a lot about manufacturing wealth in the first 24 months of investment, but you do seem to actually hold a lot of your investments a lot longer than that. Yes. Why?
0: I mean, two reasons. The first one is that if we can add the value and we don't have to crystallize the result, we're saving ourselves tax and we're enjoying a higher return. So, I mean, a really good example, we just bought a medical center and there was about 18 months left on the Queensland x-ray lease. And within two months or three months now, we've just signed them on a new 10-year deal. But we've improved their rent and they've taken over one of the vacancies in the building. So, what we're saying is our return has gone from a projection of kind of six and a half to seven. So, 7% today backed by medical. Right, with a 10-year lease to Queensland X-Ray, that is a good return. I mean, that's beating inflation, that's beating term deposits, that's beating just about anywhere you can put your money, that's not capitally appreciating. Okay, um, Well, it's not taking into account the capital appreciation, that's just the cash return. So that's one reason why we might hold on. The other reason why we might hold on is if we see there's future value to be generated by doing the same exercise again. So for instance, we could look at that asset now And because we've renewed Queensland X-Ray, yes, we could sell the site and make a million bucks. But we know that all the other tenants sitting around that Queensland X-Ray, your pathology, your doctors, your pharmacy, your optometrist, the chiropractor, they're all now gonna do the same thing because there's an MRI-backed Queensland X-Ray in the site. So there's more value to be generated. And I think that's the question that we're really consistently asking ourselves now. And that's something I wasn't doing eight years ago. Like we just weren't. But now we are consistently, every single day, we're looking at every property and saying, should we be continuing to own this because the potential upside or the potential improvement in return is greater than the risk. It's almost like you buy an asset with a set of principles, and then you have to continue to beat those principles to pieces during your ownership period. I always and say make the sure. same
1: thing to clients who've got a portfolio and say, oh, Trent, you know, this one's, haven't done a lot with it. We've already developed it. And and I've, I've said to people, you know, don't sell unless you have to. At the end of the day, you ask yourself, would you buy this again? But it works both ways as well in that just because you have your portfolio, you always have to be asking yourself, would you buy that asset again if it was on the market and for what purpose? And if the answer is, I've already generated all the wealth out of that property, it's now. Just is passive well you might sell it and use that capital towards something you can redeploy but if there are further opportunities well then why would you sell it get on with it
0: you've totally hit the nail on the head we obviously acquire assets with a set of assumptions and a set of principles and you've got to be able to continue making sure they're relevant today i mean the amount of assets we've bought held for three years and then all of a sudden there's a new development coming in down the road or there's a new uh, lot subdivision or one of our competitors like anaconda will come and buy the site across the road now we know that Zach Freed owns just about every anaconda in the country and he's a big player. That guy can generate serious returns and he doesn't care about rent. So those kind of things can upset a market. So you've got to be continually reviewing the reasons why you bought the asset and are they still true? Should you continue to hold that asset? If those assumptions change, you need to obviously update your model, make sure that it's still risk averse and that you can still defensively offer that return.
1: Cal, what a fantastic conversation it's been, chewing the fat on some really candid anecdotes, stuff that I think in 250 episodes, no one has shared as much as you have in terms of the detail. And, and I really appreciate I know the listenership will be listening to this all the way through the end thinking, what a fascinating story and uh, you know a very exciting story as well. So thank you so much for your time, mate. And I hope we can get you back in again one day to share <laughs> some more stories about some cool things you've been doing.
0: Yeah, well, thanks so much, Trent. It's been fantastic being here, mate, and you've, uh, you've had a, a very, very significant journey that I've been watching, so I feel privileged. Thanks very much. Thanks, mate. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to
1: the podcast, or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!